Hi, folks. This is Andrew Stelzer. If you get our program through iTunes, please go there and rate us so that other people can find the show. And if you're on our website, radioproject.org, please click on the donate button so that you can support this work and help us keep making great shows like this one. All right. Thanks. Here's the show. This week on Making Contact, we examine the cost of war by presenting the personal stories of U.S. soldiers grappling with the harsh realities of combat. You know, at the the same time, you you have to keep keep in in, in the back of your mind that uh, you are in a war zone. And, you know, you definitely hear stories about little kids running up and asking for candy candy and then throwing a grenade in a a Marine's uh, pouch. So so someone gets too close to a patrol, we'd... Uh, you know, I carried a M16 with a grenade launcher attached to it. You know, I had I didn't hesitate at all to point that in uh, a kid's face to 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 let him know that hey, you're you're too close to us. Stand back. I, I don't know. It just didn't feel right to me. On this edition, you hear an audio documentary produced by KLW News in San Francisco, "The Cost of War: A Reflection on the United States and Iraq Conflict." Originally produced in 2011, we believe these voices are still relevant in examining the devastating impacts of war. With the 14th anniversary of the Iraq War upon us, it is important to hear firsthand from soldiers, especially at this critical time when our current president has proposed a $54 billion increase in military spending and demonstrated a willingness to engage in aggression rather than diplomacy with countries such as China and Iran and those whose citizens have been banned from entering the U.S., all signs pointing to the possibility of more war. It was March 19, 2003. My fellow citizens, at this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq, to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. The defense strategy was called shock and awe, the idea of using a spectacular display of force to intimidate a military opponent. The stated purpose of the invasion of Iraq was ousting leader Saddam Hussein and finding his alleged stockpile of weapons of mass destruction. The United States and other nations did nothing to deserve or invite this threat, but we will do everything to defeat it. Instead of drifting along toward tragedy, we will set a course toward safety. Before the day of horror can come, before it is too late to act, this danger will be removed. After September 11, 2001, the United States launched what it called a global war on terror. In 2002, the U.S. was fighting in Afghanistan and accusing Iraqi leader Saddam Hussein of possessing weapons of mass destruction. If someone is waiting for a so-called smoking gun... We cannot wait for the final proof. It's certain that we will have waited too long. The smoking gun. We don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. It could come in the form of a mushroom cloud. The alarming rhetoric created both fear and a sense of urgency. Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld fueled the fire. There are known knowns. There are known unknowns. But there are also unknown unknowns. 
Inspectors from the United Nations were unable to determine if Iraq was mounting a chemical or nuclear threat. There are known unknowns. Still, the political momentum grew, and on March 19, 2003, the U.S. and its allies began a massive bombing of Baghdad. I remember that day. It was probably one of the worst days of my life. Iraqi-American Yara Bidet was 23 years old, living in Southern California with her parents and brother. We were watching Al Jazeera, we were watching CNN, we were watching the different ways at that point we had satellites, so we, we could watch side by side the, how different the portrayal was and all of the meanings that can be construed from that kind of difference, you know? defend the world from great danger. The night vision cameras with the green and the bombing and the explosions, and it's fuzzy, those, those pictures. Dan, this is the uh, much advertised shock and awe, the uh, campaign that is supposed to not so much uh, destroy uh, Iraq as to destroy the will of Iraq's leaders to resist. This is what's going to happen if you don't surrender. They didn't make much sense, those images, but will be you just knew it was destruction. You don't know what it means, even. You don't know when it's going to stop. You don't know when it's going to get rebuilt. You can't, you can't think of, of construction when you're still dealing with the destruction of it all. Iraqis would live with that destruction for years. Still, many celebrated the U.S. action. There was hope that ousting Saddam Hussein might bring about positive change. And my dad's family, in large part, were killed by Saddam's forces. Some of them were taken, and by taken, we don't necessarily know what that means, whether they were killed or, or imprisoned somewhere. Yara Bidet's family had opposed the Saddam Hussein regime for decades. So she says the idea of an Iraq without the dictator in power was liberating. For my dad and his peers, his, his, the other men in the community, a lot of them saw this as their opportunity. They were the ones who, who, had, been, who had struggled so much against that regime. Their life became characterized in opposition to that regime. So anything would, be, would have been better. On December 13, 2003, U.S. troops captured Saddam Hussein. Ladies and gentlemen, we got him. Yeah. Well, I remember very vividly actually watching the capturing of Saddam and when he was in the hole and those images, I think they were, they were all on the news with his beard and he looked disgusting. This danger. I used to grow up dreaming about killing him. <laughs> and now here he was and I would think, what if I had him face to face, what would I do with this man? This what would I do? And I would think of the most horrendous ways to just hurt someone the way he's hurt so many people. And I couldn't think of anything because it's been done. Everything he did was, you can't take that back. It's done. It's done. On May 1st, President George W. Bush gave his famous speech on the USS Abraham Lincoln in front of a banner declaring mission accomplished. Major combat operations in Iraq have ended. In the Battle of Iraq, the United States and our allies have prevailed.
I did not believe for one minute that it was mission accomplished. Richard Becker is the West Coast coordinator of the peace activist group called the Answer Coalition. And the idea that was perpetrated by people like Paul Wolfowitz, who was the Deputy uh, Assistant Secretary of Defense at the time, that they would be throwing, the Iraqis would be throwing chocolate and flowers at the occupying troops. I mean, we just ridiculed that idea at the time. These are Arabs, 23 million of the most educated people in the Arab world who are going to welcome us as liberators. There was early jubilation, but it quickly gave way to chaos and widespread looting. Images of looting at the National Museum shocked the world. And the fact that the U.S. occupation forces moved in... Again, activist Richard Becker... ...dismantled the institutions of the Iraqi state, but then did nothing to replace them in the short term, made that not so surprising. The power vacuum would eventually fan sectarian violence that erupted throughout the country. The page turned 180 degrees against me. In my country, translators are considered uh, as a, we betrayed the country, that's what they think. We are traitors. Iraqi translator Ghazwan al-Sharif witnessed the change take place in his own life. When the invasion came, my people from Tikrit came to me and told me to uh, help them translate because the U.S. Army bought translators, but very weak, poor English translation. At that time, I had support from my people and from the U.S. Army for sure for uh, perhaps a couple of months. And later on, they threatened me several times. They tried to kill me. The air of suspicion was in full force when Marine Ryan Berg arrived in Iraq in 2004. My name is Ryan Berg and I'm from Omaha, Nebraska. He was stationed in Mamadiya in what was nicknamed the Triangle of Death. We were struck by that name initially um, until we, um, you know, sort of got our, our, our feet wet and began to patrol the neighborhoods. And we did foot patrols and, and vehicle patrols mainly to, to show our presence that we were there. The mission was uh, was essentially that, to be a show of force and to uh, to, to root out uh, any bad guys uh, in the area. But that mission was becoming increasingly complicated. For many Iraqis, appearing to cooperate with the U.S. military put a target on their back. Places like police recruiting centers were frequently bombed. On one training day, Berg remembers searching Iraqi recruits when a man blew himself up, making everyone scramble for cover. I was uh, lying in the prone position on my stomach, and a guy was trying to crawl into the base. and. I uh, had my weapon pointed at him, and there was a staff sergeant behind me, which was like he was like two, you know, two ranks above me. Uh, but he was a younger, he was a younger guy. I could tell, and uh, you know, I had my weapon pointed at this guy that was that was bleeding. And from that, at that point, you don't know who's enemy, who's who's what, whatever. And um, you know, he he told me uh, he told me to shoot him, and I I'm not going to shoot this guy. He's crawling in. He's he's he doesn't have a, he's not strapped with explosives or pointing a weapon at me and so um, that's the point I flipped off safe and it was just a memorable experience for me because he so um, so easily you know said to shoot him. Marine Ryan Berg served two tours of duty in Iraq. He says he saw his mission as protecting the Iraqi people.
But as the war continued, Iraqis increasingly viewed the Americans as an occupying force. Yara Bidet traveled to her parents' native Iraq to witness the conflict firsthand. It seemed that a lot of the military that I encountered were suffering just as much as everyone else there. People were saying that, that priests were flying in in an airplane, aircrafts full of priests were coming in just to, to speak with suicidal soldiers, American soldiers. That's how desperate the situation was. I saw, I saw grown men cry. Most of the service members in Iraq were male, but more women served in Iraq than any other U.S. war. There were times where um, you needed females to search other females, and you know when you realize how very few there were to actually follow through with those, and um, how sometimes it created a lot of friction with the Iraqis. They really weren't comfortable with a male searching a female, and you know the need for women to fulfill those roles. My name is Starlin Laura. Um, I served active duty in the United States Army from 1995 to 2007. Starlin Lara served two tours of duty in Iraq. One of her missions was to infuse government money into the Iraqi economy around her base. This often included going to bargaining sessions with Iraqi civilians. But, she says, as a woman, she had to stay in the background. In the back seat, if you will. So a lot of my male counterparts were the ones that had the opportunity to do the dialogue. And, of course, we had interpreters communicating. But a lot had happened. And a lot of the people that we actually deal with that were Iraqis learned English very, very well to where they could interact with us and, and negotiate and bargain. They were adapting. A free national election has now taken place here in Iraq. Millions of Iraqi voters defied insurgents' threats to disrupt the elections and came out in force to choose a new parliament. Election officials estimate roughly 8 million of Iraq's 14 million eligible voters did vote. Marine Ryan Berg remembers witnessing democracy take shape in Iraq. So we were patrolling around and to see someone with the uh, purple finger was kind of a a moment I knew was historically and politically important um, that I that I took in but just didn't realize because I was there like trying to protect my and their life and so it was just a moment for me where um, where I knew where I felt my job was important as is usually the case here in Iraq inside every silver lining looms a dark cloud that greater turnout came from the Sunnis who massively rejected this constitution, and there are fears that may further divide this country along religious and ethnic lines. In February 2006, Iraq's instability increased. The destruction of the Holy Shiite Shrine in Samarra marked the beginning of intense sectarian fighting that led to the most violent year for Iraqi civilians since the invasion. I was sitting in the first floor in the middle of the house and it was nighttime and suddenly three big dynamites hit the house. Army interpreter Ghazwan al-Sharif. First bomb, when you heard it, you say, oh God, it's Americans again bombing because every day this is life. But this time it wasn't an American bomb. Al-Sharif says his house was attacked by Iraqis who considered him a traitor. He says his younger sister was wounded in the blast. I carry her front to the emergency room and open her hand and saw a cut from her ear 
towards her mouth and I can see from her cheek her tooth and blood was I was you know swimming with blood her blood if I didn't work for the US army or if I didn't work as a translator is this going to happen to me to my sister to my house no it's not going to happen so Yes, I do blame myself, but do I regret working for the U.S. Army? No, I don't regret that. Al-Sharif says he was forced to move to the U.S. Army base for his safety, and he says his family turned their backs on him. My father disowned me, you know, he had to disown me in front of the people because, you know, the safety of my uh, sisters, my family, my mother kept on uh, calling me by secret. She have to, you know, every time mention, quit working for the U.S. You have to stop, you have to stop. But Al-Sharif didn't stop. He continued to work for the U.S. Army, even though he says most soldiers viewed all Iraqis with suspicion. Most of them, they don't, they have zero trust on you. They don't trust you, although they take your word, but they don't trust you. Distrust permeated the war, making it increasingly dangerous for Iraqis and American soldiers. The Pentagon's own Iraq update is sobering. Iraq's violence is at its highest level in two years. Killings are way up. Preventing civil war, now the top priority. As gangs of killers run wild, some Shia, some Sunni, all trouble. You're listening to an audio documentary produced by KLW News in San Francisco, The Cost of War, a reflection on the United States and Iraq conflict on making contact. Originally produced in 2011, we believe these voices are still relevant in examining the devastating impacts of war. To find out more about this week's show, check out our website at radioproject.org, sign up for our podcast, or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is making underscore contact. We now return to KLW's radio documentary, The Cost of War, a reflection on the United States and Iraq conflict on making contact. In January 2007, President Bush announced a new military strategy that would be called the Surge. At least 20,000 additional troops would be deployed to secure the area around Baghdad. These troops will work alongside Iraqi units and be embedded in their formations. Our troops will have a well-defined mission to help Iraqis clear and secure neighborhoods, to help them protect the local population, and to help ensure that the Iraqi forces left behind are capable of providing the security that Baghdad needs. Yara Bidet remembers seeing soldiers inexperienced in combat on the streets of Iraq. You know, the guys who are driving the tank are just as scared as the people who are on the street. They don't know who's out there. I would say 18-year-old kids shooting their gun. Kids, 18-year-old kids shooting a gun with their eyes closed because they're just doing it out of fear. I mean, they're 18 years old. And you're patrolling the streets as if as if you're securing anything. Stop, you have to stop. You can't even secure yourself. Some U.S. troops were serving multiple tours of duty in Iraq, with surge-level deployment at 170,000. U.S. casualties totaled 902 in 2007. I landed in Fallujah in the daytime, but it, but it looked like it was night. And, and the reason why it looked like it was night because we were burning so much uh, stuff uh, that the ash just falling through in the sky. It, it really did look like uh, Armageddon. 
In 2007, Jordan Towers was a 21-year-old Marine arriving in Iraq for the first time. I, I, I felt scared all the time, and I, and I think the Iraqi people felt scared all the time. And I, 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 that combination right there is not something where, where either side is being set up for success. Towers says he had doubts about his mission early on, but he and his fellow Marines never talked about the politics of war. You know, when I was on the ground, my, my goal was to make it back home alive and to do whatever it takes to come back home alive. Towers says that survival mode forced him to be on guard all the time. He says he liked going on patrol, but it was complicated. You know, I got care packages all the time from, you know, people back home who I didn't even know. And so I take some of the candy out with me, put it in my drop pouch and, you know, give it to the kids. Um, you know, and that and that felt good. But... You know, at the, at the same time, you, you have to keep, keep in, in, in the back of your mind that uh, you are in a war zone. And, you know, you have definitely hear stories about little kids running up and asking for candy candy and then throwing a grenade in a, in a Marine's uh, pouch. So, so if someone gets too close to a patrol, we'd, uh, you know, I carried a M16 with a grenade launcher attached to it. You know, I, had, I didn't hesitate at all to point that in... Uh, a kid's face to, to 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 let him know that hey you're you're too close to us stand back and you know that th that's not something that I, it just didn't feel right to me. Towers' duties included clearing land for military operations. He remembers an incident when his unit needed to secure a bridge for a supply line, so they bulldozed the surrounding area, killing a family's goats. And you know there was a child there trying to you know, speak with me, he, you know, he was using hand gestures and, and noise, making the sound of, uh, you know, you know I, I guess a goat, to, you know, to let him know that, hey, we have our, our, you know, our food, our livelihood in there. Of course, I was there, you know, related to the lieutenant, and, you know, you know he, he didn't seem to care. But these women came out crying and yelling and, you know, just like, you know, typical Iraqi scene. It's chaos, I, I, I guess you could say. And, um... You know, to me, this it seems so simple that this was avoidable. Like, we didn't have to do this. Marine Jordan Towers returned to civilian life in 2008, the same year Barack Obama was elected on a platform that included ending the war in Iraq. Soon after he took office in 2009, he made his campaign pledge official. So let me say this as plainly as I can. By August 31st, 2010, our combat mission in Iraq will end. You know, when Obama said the war in Iraq was over, I, I kind of believe, I believed him at the time, and I, and I thought it was a good thing, and I, I thought, okay, I could finally move ahead with my life with this war behind me. But the war's effects promised to reverberate for decades to come. I think um, that it's uh, most significantly um, that you know, whether or not we were supposed to be there or not, what kind of order is going to come from um, the, you know, the, the invasion? What kind of order is going to occur? Marine Ryan Berg says civilians in the U.S. have largely been able to ignore the war and might underestimate its toll. While Americans do have, uh, you know, tough men and women um, over there, um, I think uh, that it should be, it should be known that uh, the fight is much tougher than Anyone could imagine, no matter the weaponry that, that, that we have. 
It's been eight years now since the war began. More than 4,400 servicemen and women have died. More than 100,000 Iraqi civilians have been killed and more than a million displaced. And while the Department of Defense reports about 32,000 wounded in Iraq, researchers estimate more than 300,000 military personnel have filed disability claims. Every single day, a 19-year-old child is uh, deploying and risking their lives, risking their lives for this cause, this purpose, for this country, and this country's um, political aspirations. Army veteran Starlin Lara wants the American public to remember that service. So I think that, you know, at the end of the day, there are still many, many service members who are volunteering to protect our country. But, um, you know, sometimes I don't think that the public realizes what type of sacrifices they're really making. Even though President Obama declared that uh, all combat troops left Iraq, our combat mission in Iraq will end. We still have um, 50,000 troops in Iraq, and when people shoot at them, they shoot back, and um, the war continues. Aaron Glantz is a reporter and author of The War Comes Home. He says that America's veterans are dealing with the repercussions of this ongoing war here at home. Over a four-year period, over a thousand veterans under 35 died in the state of California. And it was three times the number of uh, people who had died in the actual war during the same period. My goal is to make it back home alive. And uh, veterans uh, of the military were twice as likely uh, as people the same age uh, to die of suicide. They were five times as likely to die in a motorcycle accident, uh, twice as likely to die in a traffic accident. To do whatever it takes to come back home alive. You know, these are people who came home from the war alive and are dying in our communities. And, uh, you know, that shouldn't be happening. All wars have costs. Even so, people find a way to move on with their lives. I moved to this uh, amazing city, San Francisco. Former translator Iraqi Ghazwan al-Sharif was granted refugee status in the U.S. So now I'm very lucky, very blessed, working as a cook in Project Open Hand in San Francisco. He says he still dreams of returning to Iraq, and he carries vivid memories of his homeland. Good memories of uh, Tikrit is uh, remembering my father's farm and the Tigris River and the beautiful, beautiful agriculture we have, the green uh, palm trees all over the city. That's what I miss. We were very progressive and it doesn't resemble anything that you see today, but you would never know it. But, you know, the healthcare system was among the foremost in the region. The role of women at the same time was also. So there was a lot of things. People were formally drawn to Iraq because of its merits, because of its progress, because of its development. Iraqi-American Yara Bidet also looks to the future. My hope is placed more in the expression of people, their day-to-day, -day, the day-to-day -day people. You can talk about it in, in a really large scale, but until you see the human interaction from one to the other, a Marine to an Iraqi, a Sunni to a Shia, a light-skinned Iraqi to a very dark-skinned Iraqi, like whatever socioeconomic status you may have, you're just people. When you put them together side by side, people are just people. 
and they are that way anywhere they go. So my hope is in that. You've just heard a few of the multiple sides and stories to this ongoing conflict. Every single day, a 19-year-old child is uh, deploying and risking their lives, risking their lives for this cause, this purpose, for this country. And when people shoot at them, they shoot back, and um, the war continues. Do I regret working for the U.S. Army? No, I don't regret that. It's, it's basically what I wanted to do. You know, I dreamed of that day every day of my adult life, that moment, I dreamt of that moment where Saddam would no longer be have any power. A lot had happened, and a lot of the people that we actually dealt with that were Iraqis learned English very, very well to where they could interact with us and, and negotiate and bargain. I, I, I felt scared all the time, and I, and I think the Iraqi people felt scared all the time. I would say 18-year-old kids shooting their gun. Kids, 18-year-old kids shooting a gun with their eyes closed because they were just doing it out of fear. I mean, they're 18 years old. You know, I had my weapon pointed at this guy that was, that was bleeding. And... and that's it for this edition of Making Contact. Special thanks to KALW News for the Cost of War documentary. For a CD copy of this program, check out our website at radioproject.org to get a podcast, download past shows, or make a difference by supporting our work. You can also find links for anti-war groups, Iraq war veteran sites, and related news sites from Iraq and beyond. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.